everyone. Welcome to Making It, our weekly podcast on building a great business right here in Egypt. Brought to you by Enterprise. This season is sponsored by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. And by the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives. As a business owner, most great ideas end with, but I need money. First, you ask yourself, how do I get it? And then, what am I willing to give up for it? Based on your answers and the size and stage of your business, you may opt for friends and family, you could go to a bank if you're prepared to take on debt, or you might decide you want to bring in an investor. But how should you choose an investor? And what really makes your business attractive to them? Our guest today is Hussein Abu Musa, a partner in the Actus Private Equity Business and Chief Operating Officer of the unit. Hossein leads a team of investors focusing on financial services across emerging markets, while Actus is one of the leading investors in emerging markets and the largest private capital investment firm in Africa, with roughly $10 billion under management in private equity, energy, infrastructure, and real estate across 17 countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The firm has over 165 exits under its belt, including most recently Rena's GHL Bank, Brazil's Atlantic Renewable Energy, and South Africa's CompuScan. By 2019, Actis had reached agreements to manage four funds from the now-defunct Abroj, bringing the Actis total asset portfolio to $12 billion at the time. In Egypt, Actis invested in some of the country's most successful companies, including CIB in 2009 and later Edita, Integrated Diagnostics Holding, and now Fauri. Hossein is focused primarily on the financial services sector, so we discuss the evolution of fintech and its impact on financial services and financial inclusion in emerging markets. Hossein also offers insight into where the sector is going after bill payments, as well as where he sees untapped investment opportunities. But as an investment manager, Hossein's job is to help businesses grow to ultimately achieve a profit for his investors. So in our last episode of 2020 end season, Hossein outlines for you, the business owner, how you should go about choosing investors and business partners. He also charts what the key components of a great business are and how you can leverage these components to fundraise, despite the difficult microclimate we're in right now. So without further ado, here's Hossein. Speaking to Patrick, Enterprise's Editor-in-Chief and co-host of Making It. Hossein, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Patrick. We spoke a few weeks ago, and you were telling me that this is the longest period of time that you've been in Egypt since college. Uh, has, <laughs> any, has anything changed since then? Yes, this is true. So if, if I look back six, seven months ago, and I think of uh, not traveling for six, seven months, I would have thought it would be difficult to actually perform my job, but it has not been. We got things done quite efficiently and effectively, actually. So what's your morning routine like now? I mean, how have things changed for you? What does your day look like? So I'm an early riser. I do a bit of work related to Asia. So I usually try to get some of this work out of the way. Uh, I try to, uh, to stay uh, healthy and I work out a bit. And I either continue working from home or I come to the office, depending on how the day will go. So after years and years of kicking the tires of businesses all over the world, um, do you have a short list of, let's say, three things? So we always like a three-thing list. Uh, three things that you guys look for whenever you're approaching a business with a view to potentially investing. I think 
given that I'm a sector-focused investor, uh, I find understanding the sector I'm investing in is very helpful, allows me to properly understand uncertainties, which are plenty, and uncertainties as risks. So understanding the risks are important. Being able to engage with management teams and support and help and add value. So I think understanding the market opportunity is important for you as an investor and for the business itself, what it sets its purpose and strategy to understand the market they operate in. Second thing is, from there, have a clear strategy. The strategy needs to be linked to this market opportunity that is clearly understood. It needs to be based on the core competence and strength of the team, of the business, of the product offering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it needs to be based on a well-articulated thesis. If you're investing, you need a clearly articulated investment thesis. What is driving this thesis and why would it work? Same for the business itself. It needs to articulate the thesis behind uh, the strategy. What's going to drive your growth? Yeah. And the third point, of course, it's management, management, management. <laughs> so uh, having a fit for purpose management team, uh, having an aligned management team with you as an investor, I think this is really important. Hmm. So if I have a business today, at what point in time do I cease talking to venture capital people and start talking to private equity people? If you are still kind of in the evolution of a business model, creating uh, kind of the revenue model and going through this process, the partner required is a venture capital investor. It's not only about the, the size of the investment. They offer skills required to support entrepreneurs going through this process. What we offer is slightly different. We invest in a little bit more established businesses that require a value-added investor that can add insight on governance, insight on capital market experiences, insight on the story for exit and how to manage an exit, and of course, uh, sharing expertise from other markets as well. And some of these aspects of value-add features that would come with an investor like us might not be suitable for a venture business that uh, recently started. They would need different set of skills. How important is governance when you guys come into uh, the equation? Or, or is that just one of these pure value adds that you bring to the table? And as long as there's a willingness to talk, you can, you can engage with them? Both. So it's important because we invest in clean businesses. But we add a lot of value by evolving the governance into uh, kind of what would be understood as best-in-class corporate governance. When you have a financial investor on the table, there is a requirement to have a, a kind of a proper board structure, board meetings, independence on the board, uh, various board committees. These type of evolution of a governance uh, structure supports and helps businesses as they go through the transformation from being a family business to, to kind of list uh, on local international markets mm-hmm. or supports businesses as they grow because you require this governance to manage uh, growing businesses. So this is part of the experience we have and the value add we bring. But when we come to invest in day one, of course, what we look at in governance is purely the good and proper features of governance because we have zero tolerance investing in any business that doesn't apply kind of best practices uh, across our markets. So what's more difficult, helping a family business create structure where they already have you know, bad habits in place or creating it from scratch at a business that's you know, maybe a bit younger, faster growing with no single family shareholder? You know, what, what's the bigger challenge? Because I can sort of see how that could go either way. 
neither. I think the challenge would be uh, two things, not having alignment with the management or the fellow shareholders okay. uh, and not wanting to have a governance structure. But if there is alignment and objective and there is a need and want to actually apply the best governance, either approach of building from scratch or evolving a family business uh, is actually quite straightforward. And a lot of Egyptian family businesses actually apply very good world-class governance. So uh, it's not starting from, uh, uh, from a low point. Really? You find that family businesses are doing well on the governance front? A lot of them. Not all of them. Yeah. Because I don't think that was really the case sort of 10, 15 years ago. Is that a new shift? No, I think it's part of the evolution, part of the evolution of businesses, part of the evolution of markets. Mm-hmm. There is self-selection process happening here where businesses that like to engage with us are businesses that are already on this journey. And the businesses that we approach and seek are businesses that are progressing on this journey. Okay. Do you guys talk with the investees, with management or, you know, the selling shareholder when you get involved about what an exit scenario could look like from day one? Is that something that I have to have in mind when I come talk to you? The concept of exit, absolutely. Okay. So if there's no alignment that actually we are managing funds for investors with the objective of investing in businesses, growing businesses, creating larger businesses that one day we will have to either sell the business or sell our stake. This is in the heart of our operating model. And we share this from the one. And if this is not something that is welcomed or there is no alignment on the final objective of we are building this and then we will sell the business or we'll list it on a stock market or we will move on and another investor will will fill our space, then there is no alignment with our partners or with the management team. And, uh, And I think this is definitely will be a problem. So how do I choose a private equity partner? What should be on my checklist? Well, I'll expand the question to also what would a private equity investor seek in a partner? Okay. Uh, and it's, it's exactly like choosing a partner in life. It's choosing a partner. So you have to have alignment, mm-hmm. understanding, transparency, trust, shared values, very important. You have to have clear understanding of expectations and roles uh, you have to have willingness to support each other in good times and in more difficult times, uh, like uh, pandemics, uh, revolutions, uh, <laughs> financial crisis. We've had some of these examples. And uh, these are the same set of criteria that anyone would, would look at choosing a partner in life. And that's how you choose a partner to invest with or to bring an invite to invest in your business. I want to ask you, man. Isn't this stuff about fit and choosing a partner fairly obvious? Like from the outside looking in, it strikes me that, you know, sort of an ABC that you want to be comfortable with uh, with a person who uh, you're choosing to allow to invest in your company. You would think so. But unfortunately, we do see examples uh, of either managers or business owners or sponsors who actually go after uh, the highest price paid in a partnership, for example. So when they transact, they might go for, for the price and the value, not for the type of investor they're inviting to their business. We also see uh, investors investing in businesses where there is not full alignment with the management team or the sponsor or the business owners. And that's where everything breaks down. So uh, I think the majority of situations 
where we see uh, either a failed investment or a stress in the relationship, it all starts by being with the wrong partner, not sharing values, not aligned on the objective, not understanding exactly what are you bringing to the table and what is expected from each party. And that's where uh, things go wrong. So it really is like a marriage in that respect. I think it's the biggest single important item when a business owner or a manager think of choosing a partner. I never looked at it that way, man. Honestly, I just figured it was sort of an ABC that uh, you know the money is one thing, but are you guys moving in the same direction? Well, look, it's if, if you are selling 100% of your business. If it's a full exit, that's a different question. Well, I still believe it has to be considered because you want to leave your legacy behind. And your staff. Uh, and your staff. Your clients. Uh, your yeah. clients with someone who would uh, share the values. Yeah. So I think at least the values can be important. But of course, if you are inviting a partner or thinking of a partner that will sit with you on a board table for five, six years, it's, it's very important to understand the values and to have full alignment on what is the objective. Are we moving to the same place at the same pace with the same end goal in mind? Absolutely, especially the end goal. These all seem like really difficult things to do during COVID. It's very difficult to build a solid relationship or partnership if you cannot engage in physical interaction and have whiteboard discussions over strategy and get to know people over casual conversations and dinners, and this is the limitation that you would have in uh, new investments. Do you think it likely that you guys will pull the trigger on a new investment while we're still pre-vaccine? Yes, we recently uh, announced signing an investment in South Africa in the, uh, in the digital infrastructure space. So this took place during COVID times. Is that somebody you met pre-COVID or someone that you've met uh, after the start of the pandemic? It's a relationship that is predominantly was uh, was built and flourished during pandemic. Of course, it's one of hmm. our core sectors to invest in. And uh, my colleagues have been building this relationship over time, but the, the kind of uh, the peak of getting to know the team and the partners and diligence of the business took place uh, during the COVID times. Wow. So it's possible. It is possible. How will you know that it's time to start hitting the road again? Uh, I think when we're... Uh, when we're allowed to do so, I think that's, <laughs> that's important. And when we need to do so, because I think definitely one of the good things that will remain is not all physical meetings that used to take place are actually required to be physical. So as I was saying, physical meetings are important, but I think there'll be less of them. There'll be definitely a lot of business that can be done over Zoom and board meetings taking place with people sitting in different geographies. I want to talk for a second about how my life changes if I take on private equity. Uh, if one of our listeners were to convince you, you know, remotely over Zoom that uh, you want to invest, the fit is there. You each think you're a good partner for the other person. You effectively write a check. The transaction is executed. What's the first thing on my to-do list as CEO? What's the next checkpoint uh, that we would come into contact with each other on? And what is sort of a general expectation for me by that point in time? It's not going to be a surprise. So during this process, there is an engagement and a discussion of what value can we bring. In some situations, our engagement would be 
high intensity. In some situations, it's low intensity. But it is kind of like pre-discussed. Usually, we engage on a 100-day plan or a 200-day plan. Uh, we discuss what value we can bring. What we do not get involved in is running the business. We are not business managers. Managers manage the business. We manage the investment. We support management teams through the governance structure. And we try to bring value through the expertise we have in the sector, in the region, or from other markets to support the management in the journey. Throughout our discussion today, we've talked about added value. We've talked about governance. These are all really sort of positive things that ultimately result in the business growing. What we haven't discussed is asset stripping, um, loading up the companies in which you invest with debt, um, all the things that are sort of negative and classically associated with private equity in the West. And, you know, is this a fundamental characteristic or difference in characteristics between emerging and developed markets? Partially, of course, uh, the sector evolved since kind of the 1980s barbarians at the gate, which I'm assuming all of us enjoyed reading the book, but that's not <laughs> private equity today, neither in developed market and absolutely not in emerging markets. Yeah, Because basically, we are business creators. We grow businesses. So actually, when we invest in a business, we're investing behind growth. We occasionally use debt, either at the investing level or the company itself using debt to fund and grow its operation. Mm-hmm. But it's moderate use of debt that is not designed just to be the only source of creating your return as an mm. investor. So I think LBOs or leverage buyouts are not very popular in our markets. We, we don't really need to kind of purely depend on debt to enhance or kind of like create our return. We primarily uh, make our profit by growing businesses and enhance the quality of this business to be able to exit at a higher multiple enhance this quality by having a better business, better governance, better quality of revenue and earning, uh, more stable management team, well-articulated investment thesis. That's how you kind of enhance the value of the business. And of course, the number one source is growth. Parallel to this growth, you create jobs. So we are net job creators. We are not, our approach is not to invest in a business to uh, kind of decrease the number of people working there to make more profit. It's the country. We grow businesses and we create jobs. So uh, we think of investing in private equity in emerging markets, especially in the sectors we invest in, is a high positive impact investment approach. It's something that you guys have sort of been very vocal about um, since your creation. It's something that you've sort of turned into a recipe that you can tailor and apply to each investment. But you know, walk us through your philosophy on impact investing. Similar to uh, financial services, I think in a way we would like to think of ourselves as pioneers where we've been investing with positive impact before the word impact was kind of like fashionable. And one of the main reasons is we invest in, we grow businesses in emerging markets. We operate in sectors that are good for consumers, good for the economy, good for governments. And we actually leave legacy good businesses behind. It's something that we kind of hold dearly is actually to leave behind a good legacy. Uh, And this is part of how we evolved as a business. We believe that all our investments across uh, our sectors and our businesses, and we invest in energy, we invest in digital infrastructure, we invest in real estate. We believe everything we do and all the businesses we invest in actually are beneficial to consumers, beneficial to economies, 
and uh, end up with high impact. What's the most interesting thing happening in impact investing right now? I want to say this has been part of private equity for a longer period of time than it has been in public markets. You know, the notion of ESG funds or or impact investing or ESG criteria um, for index inclusion in a publicly traded company is kind of uh, you know a newer concept. But ESG and impact investing have sort of been core to private equity for quite some time. It seems. Of course, ESG is in the heart. Of impact investing and and applying best practice when it comes to environment, social governance. But I think actually, the real strong impact on consumers and uh, emerging markets in general is this concept of investing in social infrastructure and financial services is one of them. Just think of how the life of a consumer changes when they're suddenly included in the financial services world when they are capable of having a bank account, a digital bank account, or a mobile wallet, when they are capable of transacting efficiently through electronic payments, uh, when they have an option to uh, manage their finances by saving at an efficient cost and an efficient return through an organized manner, or buying a product and being able to pay it over installments and manage the consumption to match uh, the way they earn their income. These are very high impact changes to how consumers uh, live their lives uh, and supporting businesses that grow in this area and I would extend this into education, healthcare, are very high impact investing themes. So would you guys invest in something that isn't high impact? It's basically being present in these markets. <laughs> I was going to ask you, is it not sort of like a, if you're not being bad to human beings or polluting the environment, it's kind of hard to create something in emerging market without it having a positive impact? Correct. And that's why we are very proud of the businesses we invested in and the businesses we built and, and the businesses we left behind us to be under different ownership. Making Data is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people, through USAID, have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. USAID promotes an environment where all groups in Egyptian society can lead healthy and productive lives. Uh, what's the fundraising climate like in 2020? So I think if I change the question to what do you need to be able to succeed in fundraising? I think the, the macro picture plays a role. Yeah? So obviously having a good macro environment, good market plays a role. But actually the heart of it is having the right strategy, having the right team, and having a good track record. Hmm. And if you think of these three things as kind of a Venn diagram and this three circles intersecting. The more they're intersecting, the easier it is to fundraise even in a very difficult environment mm. because there will always be clever investors realizing that actually this is a well-articulated proven strategy. This is a team that has invested behind the strategy before and delivered this track record. So the more the three are intersecting and overlapping, the easier it is to fundraise. 
despite having a, a difficult macro landscape. What business hasn't been created yet that you would love to invest in? Where, where's the big untapped opportunity? So I think the next big area is definitely the whole social infrastructure space where all what we see as core competence of the financial services where we can reach customers and understand and analyze data. How will this evolve into education or healthcare, health tech? These businesses will follow the same journey. Uh, and I think this is an area that still can do with a lot of evolution and development in Egypt and in many of our markets. Are we ready as a market to start offering saving, investing, insurance products? I mean, does the regular, regulatory framework exist for that today? Egypt has a progressive regulator. And as long as the KYC is done appropriately, there is no reason why not businesses can offer uh, saving and investment products to uh, consumers in electronic manner. This can take place through banks, through bank wallets, through bank apps, it's not necessarily done outside of the regulated system. It has to be done within a regulated environment. You guys have invested in some great businesses in Egypt. Uh, you've mentioned CIB, you've been in IDH, you've been in Adita, um, you're now in Fodi. Um, These are all arguably really good businesses. But one of the businesses that you and I have talked about before that you are most passionate about is something called EMP in financial services. And it's a business that not a lot of people outside the industry know. So I was wondering if you sort of give me some insight into where that came from, why EMP was a great business, and we can segue from there into, into that topic of how do you build an amazing business in Egypt. So emerging markets payments, EMP, was one of the largest independent payments platform in Africa and the Middle East. We built this company over six years through a, a buy and build investment strategy. The buy and build investment strategy is centered on buying a number of businesses, consolidating them in one platform, expanding organically and organically through MA or opening presence in other markets through a very focused strategy to offer best in class service to defined customers across the client region. Uh, the, the purpose of EMP was to build this business centered on offering the core payment services uh, of card issuing, which is serving African, predominantly African and some Middle Eastern banks to be able to process cards and issue cards and link these cards to the schemes such as Visa and MasterCard and CUP. Okay. Uh, the second service is the merchant acquiring, where you build an, a relationship with a merchant, install a point of sale machine, allow this merchant to accept payments uh, electronically through a card or a wallet or, or any form of store of value, uh, and retail payment solutions, which is basically serving big retailer groups, which actually specifically for this business was centered around South Africa, where there are a number of big retailers that require these services of serving their customers through a retailer-labeled card or offering retailer-specific financing, and basically this business managed these accounts. And over this period, basically we assembled a first-class management team, more than 15 senior managers uh, serving clients in more than 45 countries. And these managers came from six nationalities, and they invested alongside us in a management bow structure. By the end of our journey with EMP at Exit, EMP provided services to 130 banks, 
more than 35,000 retail outlets and manage 10 million accounts. Okay, man. Today, every investment banker and her sister wants to get out of investment banking and into fintech. And as much as you are, you know, an investor and a private equity guy, fintech is one of the sort of, you know, crown jewels of your portfolio and of your experience personally. So what is the state of the art in fintech in Egypt specifically right now? So I'm a financial services focused investor. So uh, I look at the sector from a broader lens, not purely from the fintech lens. Okay. Um, I think we started investing in financial services more than decades ago, and specifically in payments more than 10 years ago. So I think we've been in fintech for a very long time. And in financial services, your first investment here was what, CIB? In Egypt, the first investment was uh, CIB, of course, which is uh, our biggest investment and one of our most successful and uh, a landmark investment for, for us in Egypt. So what is fintech, first off, and then what is financial services? So financial services is the service that enables consumer and businesses to transact. So for example, it allows consumers to pay bills or perform a a payment transaction. Uh, It allows institutions and consumers to store value in the form of investing, transfer value from one entity to another, and efficiently and effectively financing purchases. Uh, This is the sector. What we have seen in the sector in Egypt and emerging markets and in developed markets is an explosion of use of technology to enable businesses to offer the service or these services in a more efficient manner, more effectively reach markets and consumers they could not reach in the past. And the use of technology through any of these services is essential to propel this growth. The businesses that depend on technology to either disrupt or grow the space are the fintech businesses, their financial technology businesses that enable financial services. Where does one start and the other one stop today in this world? Where do classical financial services stop and fintech begin? I think that there is no financial services business today that is not using technology Hmm. somehow. Pure fintech businesses are dependent on technology to create its thesis. These are pure fintech business. So Fauri is a fintech business, a pure fintech business. Fauri is a very good example of an Egyptian business that is highly dependent on technology to uh, sort of grow a market and fill a huge white space. And then on the other hand, you have banks as sort of the prime example of an offline financial services business that wants to come online. Yeah, there is a general view that banks are behind. But actually, I think banks use a lot of technology and a lot of banks uh, are quite progressive in their thinking. Uh, and they use technology to be able to offer services better to consumers and to use data analysis to better serve and better reach their consumers. So I think the financial services opportunity across our markets and Egypt specifically, it's big enough for banks to continue to grow for banks to continue to flourish, and new businesses that are emerging, that are operating in a space that can work alongside the banks to grow the pie, not to crowd out the banks out of the market. Mm. Especially with penetration, I mean, we're at best at, what, a 33% penetration rate in Egypt? Yes, I think it's basically, if you look at Egypt specifically, 
currently about one third of the adult population, not of the whole population, is banked. So that's roughly maybe 20 million bank accounts out of a population, adult population of roughly 60 million. But the more striking statistics is, it's estimated that about 96 to 97% of transactions are performed in cash. So that's the real opportunity is bringing that into the formal system. That is the real opportunity. So when we first invested in payments in Egypt, this figure was about 99% about 10 years ago. And it's not a very small shift, by the way, because obviously the market is actually growing. So the pie is getting bigger. Mm -hmm. And going from 99 to 96, it means that the size of the market or the size of electronic payments uh, increased by 400 times plus the growth of the market itself. So this is a significant growth, yet it's still a very long way to go. Even the advanced and developed markets, if you take uh, the US, roughly half the transactions are still done in cash. The most uh, progressive electronic payment markets, uh, Scandinavia, for example, and Denmark, still about roughly one third of transactions take place in cash. So even these markets, the opportunity for payments businesses to grow is still quite big. This is one of the few sectors that is still growing quite rapidly in developed markets. And what's interesting, this is one of the few sectors where the opportunity in emerging markets is actually a lot bigger than developed markets because of the nascent nature of this market. How has COVID impacted the shift towards cashless? Have you guys seen any actual numbers that would support the shift? You know, the magnitude or quantify the magnitude of the shift? Well, it's very difficult to talk about positive impact of COVID, <laughs> but I think one of <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But with COVID, you don't want to be positive on anything. But uh, but I think on uh, specifically in e-commerce and payments, and electronic payments, definitely we can see this in some of our businesses that we're involved in. So, for example, uh, GHL, our payment business in Southeast Asia, where we uh, part of it is an online payment gateway, which allows businesses to accept electronic payments online, uh, we've seen exponential growth on processed volumes through this part of the business driven by the COVID lockdowns. So looking back, Hussam, a decade ago, it was rare that you saw financial services being offered outside of a bank. Uh, The rise of consumer finance, of leasing, uh, and of the technologies that support it really sort of seem to be within the last decade or so. How has that unfolded from your point of view as an investor in the sector? If you look at financial services businesses, what do they need to actually serve their customers? Number one, they need to actually know this customer. So if you think of credit bureaus, which is basically the data of the customers, uh, where the data is kept for financial services businesses can have access to this data to decide if this customer is good for credit or not. The adult coverage by credit bureaus in the uh, Middle East and North Africa, the MENA region, is estimated to be anything between 16, at best 20% of adult population. Region-wide? Region-wide. Wow. In Egypt, probably it's not very different. The bank population is about one third of the adult population. Probably that's at best, this would be the coverage. 20%, yeah. So basically, to, to have a consumer walking into a bank, opening a bank account, uh, and the bank serving this customer, it requires a certain size of a portfolio or a size of a saving investment. And of course, uh, banks were not able 
to serve the bottom of the pyramid because they neither had the data nor were able to reach this bottom of the pyramid, wherever they are, mm -hmm. and it did not make any economic sense to be able to serve them. And from a consumer point of view, why would they walk into a bank if they are not uh, holding a lot of wealth or saving? So, of course, the revolution that is happening on the communication and uh, smartphones and internet penetration is highly linked to how the financial services sector is shifting from kind of the legacy traditional financial services business and uh, depending or using technology to grow and not to grow by eating market share from other places, actually growing by having a bigger market, a bigger pie. The need to save, the need to borrow exists, but the ability to know the customer and reach the customer was not there. And the use of mobile phones, internet penetration and technology enabled businesses to reach these customers and allow them to transact more efficiently and effectively. And then the same thing would hold on the business-to-business -business side, right? You've got a lot of really small informal businesses that can have shoe, you know, the metaphorical shoeboxes of money, but they're again unknown to the financial system until the owner has a smartphone in her hand. Correct. And one of the beauties of the financial services sector is it's one of the sectors where everybody wins including governments, regulators, businesses, consumers, everybody wins. So is it fair to say, man, that the first phase of the fintech revolution has been payments because we need to connect people to the system? Is the next phase product? Like, where do we go from here? Transactions and payments is roughly half the revenue pool and the size of transactions that take place in our markets. Mm -hmm. And it's the area where it was least penetrated because it was very dominated by cash. So payments is definitely the face of engaging with consumers because consumers transact as they consume, but it's not necessarily the only area where there is growth happening in the financial services space and creative fintech businesses are emerging. All right, Sam, last question for you, sir. If you could not be a private equity person tomorrow, what business would you create? So unfortunately, I've only worked as a private equity investor in emerging markets, so I don't have a lot of skills <laughs> so, so if i was not a private equity investor uh probably i would uh, would have tried to be a private equity investor i uh, enjoy it i think it's uh, it's fun it's rewarding you end up being engaged with businesses over a long period of time you build uh, success stories over years you get to operate and work with extremely talented uh, management teams and you get to understand the sectors you invest in, in a kind of a very deep and um, intimate approach. So, uh, so for all these reasons, I think enjoy what I do and I wouldn't want to change it. <laughs> Sam, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this week's episode, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. This season is brought to you by CIB and USAID.